All right, please remain standing and turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 53. A few weeks ago, we, we read the first six verses of this chapter, and I thought, um, just pick up kind of where we left off then in a quite different context. But I'm going to read verses 7 through 12 as an introduction to Romans 5. Um, people have, with tongue-in-cheek, referred to the gospel according to Isaiah This is one of the clearest passages in the Old Testament, um, opening our eyes to not only the fact, but also the meaning of the death of Christ for sinners. Isaiah 53, starting at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Amen. Let's turn now to Romans 5. Romans 5, we'll read verses 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amen. You may be seated. At our house, there's a series of books that we really like about a character named Adam Raccoon. Adam Raccoon. Uh, Adam lives in a forest that is governed 
by the mighty lion, King Arin. And in the first book, uh, there's a, a sparkling pool called Tempting Pond, where King Arin um, posts a sign that says, No Swimming. And he does this because there is a current in Tempting Pond that would draw swimmers into a uh, fast-moving river and then over the edge of what's called Forever Falls, this great waterfall where the swimmers would be swept away to their death on the rocks below. And predictably, of course, Adam Raccoon ignores the sign. He goes swimming anyway in Tempting Pond. And although he enjoys himself for a little while, very soon he feels himself caught up in this current And he's no longer in the pond. He's in the river now. And then there's the top of the waterfall approaching. And none of his friends can help him. There's there's no escape from this disaster. He's about to be swept over the edge. And at the last moment, all of a sudden, there's this great splash. And there's King Arryn swimming towards him with these mighty strokes until at the last moment... The lion tosses Adam up out of the water onto the shore in safety while he himself plummets over the edge of the falls and into the depths at the bottom. The hymn asks the question Who was the guilty? Who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason, Jesus, hath undone thee. The slave has sinned and the son has suffered. For me, kind Jesus, was thy incarnation, thy mortal sorrow, thy death of anguish, thy bitter passion. Another one says, mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. You may remember the verse, mine, uh, therefore, kind Jesus, since I cannot pay thee, I do adore thee. And think on thy love unswerving, not my deserving. Thy love unswerving, not my deserving. In other words, it's talking about the love of God in the death of Jesus for people who don't deserve any of it. And that is one way of putting the meaning of the cross of Christ. And it is a way of putting Paul's message for us today, here in Romans chapter 5, as we're going to start this morning first with the proof of God's love in verses 6 through 8. Second will be the hope of future grace verses 9 and 10, and third, the joy of being reconciled, verse 11. So the proof of God's love, the hope of future grace, and the joy of being reconciled. Um, You know, I was reading uh, Doug Moo on this passage this week, and he pointed out something I hadn't realized before. It was very striking to me that uh, Romans 5, verse 5, where we left off last week, that is actually the first mention of the love of God in the book of Romans. A little surprising. Take five chapters to, to mention the love of God for the first time. 
Romans is actually going to talk a lot about the love of God. One day we're going to get to that famous climactic verse in Romans 8. A lot of people know where it lists all of these things that cannot separate us from the love of God. Depth, heights, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, etc. Um, but this is where that theme begins. If you think of the book of Romans like a symphony. Paul's like this great composer and he's introducing these different themes, these different melodies. Um, you can maybe think of each one being played by a different part of the orchestra um, and are stated by a different part of the orchestra. And so chapter 1 led off with the great theme of the righteousness of God, right? And then that naturally led to the wrath of God, which is God's righteousness as it's revealed against our sin. And then from the wrath of God, though, we moved on to the grace of God, right? God's righteousness revealed in a different way through the righteousness of Jesus that we can get as a free gift when we receive it by faith. And that was what Paul called justification. Okay, but even if we understand all of those concepts, we might still be left with a question, but why? Why on earth would God do something like that? Why would God provide that other pathway to righteousness for sinners apart from the law? Why not just stop with the wrath part? Why not just end the book at chapter 3, verse 20? Justice, condemnation, punishment, wrath, period, full stop, which the Lord would have been perfectly free to do if he had decided that that was going to be his plan. But again, thinking of Romans like a piece of music, um, here in chapter 5, this, this new motif woven in to the texture of the symphony. And our, our ears are drawn to it. It's like this kind of this ray of light breaking in. And it makes you want to kind of, if you were listening to the concert, you want to kind of sit forward in your seat, lean forward a little bit, catch this fresh wind blowing through the love of God. God's love has been Poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us, verse 5. Poured in, you remember, not measured out. Poured in. Well, picking up in verse 6 then, Paul is going to tell us more now about that love of God. That theme is continuing here. And there are actually many ways that God shows us his love. In verse 5, Paul kind of started in the middle by mentioning the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's one great way that God has shown his love, is by giving us the Holy Spirit. Um, But that's not the first way that God has shown us his love. And so in verse 6, it's kind of like Paul takes a step back. For while we were still weak, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Um, I've talked to you before about using the uh, journalistic questions to help study the Bible more closely, right? Who, what, when, where, why, and how. Well, verse 6 answers the question, actually answers several of those questions, but starts with the question, when? When did Jesus die? And the answer is, and we could try to give a date, but that's not the point here. The answer is, while we were still weak, that's when. While we were still weak. I'm sure you've heard the common saying that God helps those who help themselves. And uh, some people think that that's a Bible verse. 
which it isn't. You will not find that anywhere in the Bible. And in fact, it is really exactly the opposite of what the Bible really teaches, which is that God helps those who cannot help themselves. That is the message of the Bible. That's the message of the gospel. Uh, You've heard talk probably about the T in tulip, those five points, total depravity, Um, that, that, that deep sinfulness of our whole human nature. Well, one aspect of total depravity is what we call total inability. Total inability that we cannot help ourselves. See, Jesus didn't die for us because maybe we had done just enough. And and then he thought he'd help us the rest of the way. Like a parent saying, well, I guess if you can do some chores and earn, you know, $20, then I'll kick in the rest for that bicycle that you want or something like that. No, it's not like that. Uh, As Romans 8 is going to put it, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Total inability. We are completely unable to contribute anything to our salvation because we are utterly weak. And while we were still weak, that is when Christ died for us. But don't get Paul wrong here. It's not like that weakness is kind of um, like morally neutral, right? Like, oh, well, we were just weak, kind of like the way people, when they're caught in some, something wrong they've done, they say, oh, I just made a mistake. That's a lot different from saying, I have done wrong, I have sinned. Oh, I just made a mistake. It's not that kind of weakness that Paul's talking about. Um, we're not just these helpless, innocent bystanders, these victims of the evil in the world. No, verse 6 doesn't say that Christ died for only for weak people. It says he died for ungodly people. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly So, this is setting up uh, the main points Paul wants to make here. Um, We hear amazing stories from time to time about people's heroic acts of sacrificing in some dramatic way, sometimes laying down their own lives for the good of somebody else or to save somebody else's life. And that's amazing to hear about under... Any circumstances, maybe you'll hear about a parent rescuing their child, um, soldiers defending their families, their homeland, the freedom of their countrymen at the cost of their own lives. These are true acts of heroism, and we are right to honor them and celebrate them. We sometimes speak of a soldier or a police officer or a firefighter going above and beyond the call of duty, sometimes at the cost of their lives. And, and that's what Paul is getting at in verse 7 when he says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps, perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. There's an old movie my family likes where uh, Danny's, Danny Kaye's character saves uh, Bing Crosby's life during World War II. And Bing Crosby comes by the field hospital to say, well, I just want to say thank you for saving my life. And he says, well, it was... It was a life worth saving, sir. It was a life worth saving. Perhaps for a good person, one might dare even to die. Maybe. One might dare to go above and beyond the call of duty. 
if you could see that it was worth it. If you could see this is a person whose life I'd like to see saved, it seems worth the sacrifice. But the love of God is different from that. It is deeper than that. It is more profound. This one hymn says, The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It says, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, and were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, well, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. This is a love unlike any other kind of love. And that's why Paul says in verse 8, But God, but God shows his love for us in this manner that outstrips all other acts of human heroism. Human self-sacrifice for others. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I think about poor little Adam Raccoon, trapped in that current, unable to swim against it, and about to be swept over the waterfall. Helpless, yes. Weak, yes. Unable to help himself, yes. Innocent? Well, no. This was a crisis of his own making, right? It was Adam who had made that rebellious choice to pursue his own pleasure, to do what he wanted, to ignore the warnings that the lion's law had put in place. And brothers and sisters, you and I can each look at our own lives and we can see with grief, we can see with shame the ways that we have ignored the sign and gone for a swim in tempting pond. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Think about your own life from a God's eye point of view. Think, is that a life worth saving, sir? If you were in Christ's place, is that the way your actual life would look to you? Do you think that's a life worth saving? You see, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still like that, still in our sinful depravity, and filthiness, he looked on us with love. And Christ leaped into that river of humanity, taking on himself our very nature. And he bore the full force of that rushing current of the curse. And in that very act of securing our safety from the wrath of God, the Lord Jesus was swept over the edge death, and the wrath and the condemnation that we deserved. That is what it means to say Christ died for us. And so you see, it's not enough just to say that Jesus died to show us God's love. That's something some people um, 
get wrong. Stop there and just say, well, Jesus died to show us the love of God, period. Jesus died as this kind of extreme demonstration of how much God loves us, as though God just wanted us to see how willing he was to enter into our suffering, how willing he was to suffer alongside with us, to show his compassion for us, um, as though it was just this other way, this, this yet another way for God to get closer to us, to show us how much he cares, so that we would then be inspired, we'd be motivated by that to obey him better, to follow his example by giving ourselves for others and so on. But see, that's not the gospel. That's not what Paul is teaching us here. He's not teaching us that Christ just died to show us, to teach us something about God, just to display a truth for us or illustrate it. He says Christ died for us. That means he died in our place. He died the death that we deserved. That is a much more profound good news. I want to mention one other misconception that this passage can help to clear up for us. Um, Some people, as they live the Christian life, um, get the idea somehow... It can come from different places. And you get the idea that God the Father is the person of the Trinity who's angry at them. And it's God the Son who kind of convinces God the Father not to punish us. God the Father really wants to punish you, but Jesus convinces him not to by dying on the cross. He gets him off our case. Think of Jesus as the loving one and the Father as the angry one. Um, that can again, that can come from different places. Maybe for some people, it can reflect our experiences in our own families more than it reflects what the Bible is actually teaching us about the way that our Father God showed His love for us. You can see here that the death of Jesus was not the thing that stopped God's anger; um, that He really wanted to pour out against you, and Jesus got in the way. The death of Jesus, it says here, was the way that God the Father showed his love for you. This was the Father's plan. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit working together in perfect harmony to save sinners, not one pitted against the other. You do not have a Father God who really wants to punish you and the Son is holding him back. You have a Father God who loved you so much that he gave to you, Christ Jesus. A Savior, Christ Jesus, who loves you so much that he said, Yes, Father, I am going to go and rescue those people at the cost of my own life. You have a Holy Spirit who then assures you within crying out, Abba, Father, Yes, you have a Father in heaven who loves you and a Savior, Jesus, who loves you. Together. So far, Paul has looked at the past. This is what Jesus did. In verse 9, then, he begins to turn his attention to the future. On the basis of this fact of what God has done in history, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us back then, what hope does that give to us for the future? That's the name of the second point, is the hope of future grace. Since, therefore, 
we have now been justified by his blood much more than, this is what people like to call an argument, from the lesser to the greater. Um, So Jerry Clower, it's okay if you haven't heard of him, but he tells a story about a boy named Marcel Ledbetter. The man tells Marcel Ledbetter, son, I'll give you $5 if you can eat this big old watermelon, rind and all. And Marcel says, sir, I believe I can eat that watermelon. Give me half an hour and I'll tell you. And a half an hour later, he comes back and he says, yes, sir, I believe I can eat that watermelon. And he eats it, rind and all. And the man said, well, son, here's your $5, but can I ask you, where did you go for that half hour? And Marcel said, well, back at the house, we had a watermelon about twice that size. And I knew if I could eat that one, I could eat this one too. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. How much more could I eat the smaller one? Here in verse 9, Paul's saying the, the hard part, the hard part was the work of justifying sinners in his life of obedience on the cross. Um, of, in his life of obedience and on the cross, rather, Jesus did the hardest part. He did that work of taking sinners, taking ungodly people, weak people who could not help themselves, and living for them and dying for them, enduring the wrath of God for them, and making this way for them to be righteous in the sight of God. That's what Jesus did. A stupendous, heroic effort. A task that would have seemed impossible. It would have been impossible for anyone else. If Jesus could do that, then let's think about the future now. Let's think about the final judgment if, if we've now been justified by the blood of Jesus, how much more is he going to be able to save us from the wrath of God in the final judgment? Verse 10, he says, listen, if, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, well, then what do you think is going to happen now? Especially now that Jesus has risen from the dead, by the way. Because listen, Jesus is not on the cross anymore. Jesus is no longer the suffering Savior. He is risen from the dead. This is why we are called Resurrection Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Because we serve a risen Savior. And we are participating in the Christian life right now in the resurrection life of Christ. The resurrection life of Christ. That is what we have by His power through the Holy Spirit. So if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son... Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. His life as he ever lives to intercede for us. His life as he is coming again to make all things new and to bring us home with him in the new heaven and the new earth. We're going to have a lot more opportunities, especially in chapter 6 and in chapter 8, to talk about why the resurrection of Jesus is so important in the Christian life. As we've died to sin, but we're now living this new kind of life that's at work in us through the Holy Spirit because of Christ's resurrection power. For now, I just want to suffice it to say, if you have begun to grasp the power of Jesus dying for you, just imagine the power of Jesus living for you. See Paul's logic here? If Jesus' death could rescue from wrath, and reconcile you back to God when you were his enemy. Just imagine what Jesus can do for you today from the throne of heaven where he's living and reigning. Just imagine what Jesus can do for you in the end when you stand at the threshold of eternity and when he comes again to renew his creation. That 
is what leads us then to verse 11 and to the final point here, the joy of being reconciled. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And see, this is now the payoff for the Christian life. When you realize that you were uh, what, what you were apart from Jesus, that you were dead in your sin, that you were weak, you were unable to please God, that you were God's enemy, that you were alienated from him, you were far away, you were out of fellowship, cut off from a relationship of life and love with him. But then you realize what Jesus did, that, that while you were like that, before you had done anything that possibly could have pleased him, Christ died for you because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sin. And so now you're forgiven. And now you're reconciled. And, and your heavenly father has run out to you like that dad in the prodigal son parable to meet you and to embrace you and to welcome you in because he loves you. And you think, what could explain that? What could account for that? You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. God just did it. And he loves you for no other reason except that he loves you and that he has always loved you. From eternity, he has loved you for no reason that's in you. It's all in him. It's all his own determination to love you and to bring you all the way to glory in spite of yourself. So how do we respond to that kind of love? And you might say, well, I know, now we're supposed to obey. Guilt, grace, gratitude, right? Now I show my gratitude by working hard for God. And, okay, yes, there's that response of of grateful obedience. Yes, we want to have faith that is expressed in lively work um, in obedience to the Lord Jesus. And we're going to get to that some in the next chapter, in chapter 6. But let's not get ahead of ourselves, because that's not the first thing Paul says about our response to the love of God. He doesn't immediately hit you now with a to-do list um, that he had kind of been holding in reserves, like, okay, now I can finally give it to you. No, he simply says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice. And notice here, we, re- we can rejoice as a, as a choice. Okay? I don't mean that just as a silly rhyme, but I, it's, I'm serious here. You aren't automatically or always going to have the feeling of joy. There's no doubt about that. I mean, we can't always control that, that feeling. It doesn't mean being happy all the time. No, you rejoice as a choice in response to what you know, what you have beheld about the love of God towards you. And you can rejoice as a choice even when your feelings tell you not to. This is exactly where chapter 5 started, by the way. We rejoice, verse 3, even in our sufferings. That was what we went over last Sunday. This, this reality of being reconciled to God, of knowing with confidence that Jesus died for me when I didn't deserve it, that he gave me his life when I only deserved his curse. That fills for a Christian this reservoir of joy that we can go to by the grace of God, even when the joy is not raining down out of the sky at that particular moment, right? It's it's nice when you can go out and just soak it up and you can feel the joy just raining down on you and things are going well and it's easy to rejoice at that moment, but sometimes it feels like there's a drought of that joy. It's not 
falling out of the sky and things are going badly and life is really hard. Maybe you're even struggling with your ongoing sin and you think, oh, could God possibly really love me now? I don't even love myself. I disgust me sometimes. But you see, there's this deep, deep reservoir of joy that God has provided for you and that he has filled up with this evidence, this unchanging and unchangeable evidence of his deep and abiding and limitless love for you in Jesus Christ. And he is inviting you and even commanding you, come, as the hymn says, come to the well of unmerited favor. Stretch out your hand, fill your cup to the brim, Jesus is such a compassionate Savior. Draw from the grace that flows freely from him. I hope I didn't give the impression earlier that Adam Raccoon in Forever Falls has a a sad or tragic ending. Um, As Adam is sitting on a stump with his head in his hands, overcome uh, with sorrow as he realizes that King Aaron has just given his life uh, to, to rescue him. Behind him, there's a rustle in the bushes. And on the next page are these beams of light streaming out from behind the bushes. And there stands King Aaron pushing them apart. And he's alive. He's alive. If we've been saved by his death, how much more are we going to be saved by his life, people of God? While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is how God proves to you his love. How much more then? How much more are we going to be saved by the life of Jesus? That is good news for the people of God. And it is something to rejoice in. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you all of our thanks and praise and gratitude for this good news. We ask that you would help us to take it to heart. Lord, we pray that if any are gathered this, here this morning, Um, who maybe have never understood this good news, or maybe you are hearing it in a fresh, life-giving way, Lord, we ask that each one would reach out their hand and receive in faith this free gift of the death and resurrection of Christ for sinners, of your free and full forgiveness for people who don't deserve it. May none of us go from this place today holding that gift at arm's length. May we receive it with gratitude and with joy. In Jesus' name, amen.